0: This podcast is brought to you by MetCloud. Get connected, cyber safe.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Series 2 of the Vanguard Podcast, and I'm very honored today to have a guest who I've known and respected for many years. Luis Giraldo is well known in our technology and MSP world, having worked for companies like IT Glue and Enable. He also runs his own very successful MSP. And has just recently been appointed Chief Experience Officer of ScalePad, which is an application that automates asset lifecycle management for hardware, software, and warranty services for MSPs. Luis started his career as a professional musician playing keyboards for pop star Shakira, but more recently has been on stage delivering speaking engagements to thousands of IT providers around the world as an executive and respected industry leader. Louis Giraldo, thank you so much for joining me on Series 2 of the Vanguard Podcast. Welcome from Vancouver, Canada.
2: Well, thanks, Scotty Tyson. It's been so long. Um, We were just reminiscing about the last time we got together and uh, we're looking forward to doing that again.
1: You know, it's been far too long and obviously COVID has caused that and various elements of careers and so forth. But um you know, let's talk about COVID for a second. How is Vancouver and how is Canada coping with um the pandemic? Obviously the the biggest upheaval in our lives and our generation, but sure. how how are you coping? How is the family? How is everything in Canada and, and and the vaccine rollout and so
2: Yeah, I think we're at the stage of, of healthy disrespect for all the rules. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know, like like many places it started, people heeding the call and being very serious. Um, it was very quiet here at the end of March and April when the medical professional and the provincial health authorities' guidance was to stay home and not go out. And people did stay home and it was a ghost town here. Literally, I lived downtown and it was very quiet. I've always had a remote work uh, set up and so it was kind of not a big deal from a environment perspective for me. But we started to sort of feel a little bit the the tiredness of it and the lack of travel for, for someone like myself who's traveled quite a bit with events and channel and such, it started to feel like I needed to get out. and uh, But you sort of fall into the rhythm and different people handle that in different ways, certainly. But we were okay you know,
1: one of the things that I wanted to ask you, too, is what what's the vibe like over there from a general public point of view? Are they seeing that businesses are starting to open up again? Is there light at the end of the tunnel from a Canadian and a BC standpoint? Certainly over here in the UK, we're starting to open up. You know, people are starting to travel back into London. And then you've got the flip side to that, and you've got Australia that they think they're going to put this fence around the whole country, and they're going to have this 0%, which you and I both know is never going to happen. What's the general consensus over there from the general public over in in Canada and, and of course, BC?
2: Yeah, certainly industry-dependent or industry-driven. You know, the hospitality industry – has seen a slow return. And it's primarily driven, of course, also by the travel restrictions because in Canada, you could not enter Canada without being fully vaccinated until recently they've started to allow travel back into Canada and you still have to be fully vaccinated. Even if you were vaccinated, there were still heavy requirements. You had to do a three-day hotel stay that was mandatory and a 15-day quarantine. So even if you were vaccinated, you can come in for a, a casual business trip or anything like that. And so as those things have loosened up a little bit, uh, obviously we'll see some of the uptick in tourism industries, hotels, and restaurants. But restaurants have been going through different phases, and certainly we see the phase where, oh, they're required to close, and then when you have the second wave, they were told to close again, and then reopening at 50% capacity. And now they're allowed to have 100% capacity, but they have mask mandates, and now the vaccine passport requirement is coming in. And so there's stories about how even some restaurants are having to potentially hire security guards to enforce vaccine passports, because provincially, they're mandated to follow those guidelines and they could be fined if, if they don't. And so it'll be an interesting thing. I, I find that generally speaking, people are seemingly confusing inconvenience with oppression where COVID is concerned. And uh, So I definitely treat it simply as a small inconvenience and I don't feel my human rights are being violated in any kind of way. And I think that's the big conversation that's going to happen over the next little while.
1: I, I think that's a really good point. And, you
2: know, um,
1: the the other thing that really gets me is in, in six months' time, what are we going to talk about?
2: <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, we'll have to find new things to talk about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to swap it over now. I mean, thank you so much for the overview of what's going on in BC. And and one of the things that I really enjoy is, you know, speaking to people internationally and finding out what's going on in the different territories. I I find it fascinating. But, you know, you've had this phenomenal journey. You know, it's it's an overused term, but it is a journey from growing up in Bogota, going to a music academy, University of Columbia. And then all of a sudden, thrust into the limelight, if you will, playing keyboards around the world on stage to tens of thousands of people every night, playing keyboards for Shakira. And by the way, I certainly want to get into that more and more and more. But that's probably when we're having a few beers and and in a bar and no recording devices around. (laughs) And then obviously, you became a a SaaS company founder with Monkey Box. You've owned and you still own a very successful MSP. And you've worked for and helped grow and be acquired companies like IT Glue, and Enable, of course, and now are now into Scalepad. I think it's a fantastic story. I want you to go all the way back to that little Lewis back in Bogota to now and what inspired that journey and those pivots. Because to me, a life is all about pivots and taking opportunities and and being malleable not only in your career but also everything in your life. I want to hear about the journey that took the young fella from, you know, a music academy into the university playing for Shakira, looking at Shakira um, and then, and then, obviously, into the i t journey. can you can you give us a five minute overview of that magnificent fifteen or twenty years, mate?
2: Hold on. i'll I'll bring out my tape back up so I can restore some of these memories. <laughs> uh, holy moly. So, yeah, absolutely music, I think, has been at the forefront of of my early childhood and and life. I got into music quite late, in fact. I remember going to a summer camp. Uh, when I was 15 years old and I lived in Colombia, but I I went as a counselor in training to a summer camp in Virginia, uh, in the U S. And I remember there used to be a lovely pianist. She was working in the kitchen. I think she was Russian. She was there for the summer as well. And after lunch or dinner, she'd go to the wall piano that was there and she'd just play songs. And I remember that summer, that was 1989, by the way, I'm dating myself now. Uh, The Richard Marks song "Right Here Waiting" oh. uh, was quite popular. A great, yeah. great, song, great song, a classic for the ages. Yeah, yeah. And and so she came out and sat down at the piano, and it has a very simple piano line, and she played it. And I was like, "Oh my god, I love that song! Can I, you know, I, I want to learn how to play it." And I had played a little bit of uh, my mom had made me take organ lessons when I was a kid, and so I knew some keyboard fundamentals, but I'd never really played <laughs> pop songs or piano or anything of that sort. Uh, so I remember sitting down at that piano and I was actually able to figure it out. I, I discovered that I had an ear for music. And I remember getting back home to Colombia after that summer and just being on my mom's uh, case about getting a keyboard. And she got me a keyboard for my next birthday. So 60, f- age 15 or age 16 is when I started in earnest playing keyboards and and when I was really interested in in pop music and learning how to play songs and such. And that sort of carried on like that I I started I got into a band with some high school classmates it was called Shade of Black awesome <laughs> as 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 most high school bands have these you know uh goth names and so Shade of Black was the name of the band and we mostly did pop covers of uh rock in spanish U2 um Miguel Mateos, which is a Argentinian singer. Um, Sol Acerio, another very popular Argentinian band. The Argentinians, by the way, were kind of the, the leaders of the rock and Spanish movement in many ways. And so at that time, that was sort of what was was playing a lot. And uh, that was a couple of years of that fun. Uh, got into uh, my f- university at the time. For a couple of weeks. And then I was drafted to the Colombian military. Um, Is that compulsory? Uh, it's more compulsory now. Back then, they would still bring you to a little theater. They'd make you pull a ballot out of a bag okay. and you could choose a green or red ballot. And if it was a green ballot, you didn't have to go. If it was a red ballot, you had to go. Right. So I think one of my classes, one of the last classes that had to actually go do the ballot thing. And I pulled a red ballot. And so I had to go. The friends we had were not in high enough places to get me out of military service. <laughs> <laughs> uh in any case, so that was an interesting time. I was drafted. I went to the presidential battalion, which is right behind the presidential palace in the Capitol. And one of the first things that was offered was to join the marching band. And I thought, well, this kind of beats standing guard at three in the morning. So I joined the marching band, learned how to play trumpet, eventually became the instrument leader or for trumpet in the marching band. So I've got a bunch of great fun pictures from that time of just playing trumpet in the presidential marching band. And then I went to university. I, my initial career was industrial engineering, but I'd always been focused on the music, really loved that piece, got connected with an audio engineer down there that was going to start a new audio engineering emphasis at the university I was at. So I switched careers. I figured that was the only way I could trick my parents into letting me leave an engineering career was that I was going to audio engineering. It was still an engineering career. Um, and so I started that and once I joined that program. My whole life opened up musically because one of the musicians that had come to this program was the keyboardist in this very popular rock band in Colombia at the time. Band name is Polygamia. Literally translated as polygamy. It's one of those choices I can't take back. I didn't make the choice, but that's what it's called. And uh, and he was thinking of starting his solo career and leaving the band and he liked me and he liked my playing and so he kind of brought me into the band and I became his replacement when he left. And this band went into the studio, we did a couple of albums, uh, we did a bunch of touring and recording. And one of the albums we did was produced by Shakira's uh, bassist and guitarist at the time, El Chato Rivas and Sergio Solano. So those two guys we were in the studio with for a couple of months and that's how I got to meet some of those guys. Now, fast forward to the end of that summer of 1996, and I got a a page. I still had one of those Motorola pagers back then, and it was from Arnold, the keyboard player for Shakira, uh, because he had also come into the studio with the rock band and had guested on a track, and so I'd met him, and he's a super nice guy. And He says, hey, you know, I've got this thing this weekend uh, with Shakira that she's going to do a couple of tour dates in Ecuador, and I've got this theater gig that's opening, and I can't go to Ecuador or Shakir. I wonder if you'd mind like subbing for me for a couple dates. And I'm like, yeah, of course. And so he invited me to the rehearsal. This is a Friday afternoon. It was the last rehearsal supposedly before a Sunday trip to Ecuador to do actually three concerts. And I got there and Rewind just a sec. Shakira was dating the bass player in my band, in the band I was in. Okay, And so I actually knew her, like she had been to my house for my birthday and stuff yeah, like that, but yeah. she was just getting some popularity in Colombia at this point.
1: Oh, so she was only Colombian at that time, not a global sensation. Yeah, yeah okay. But,
2: but her album had been out now for a little bit and it was starting to sort of pick up steam internationally and other countries were, hey, you know, this album is quite popular. We should think of bringing Shakira to do a show, that kind of thing. Anyway, so I get to the rehearsal Arnold was late and so Shakira arrives and she sees me. She's like, well, why are you here? And this is when I realized he hadn't even told her that he couldn't go to do the Ecuador dates. And I was like, oh, no, Arnold just invited me to come and hang out. And she's like, "Mm," you know, gave me a stink eye and said, Okay, cool. You know, uh, and then Arnold arrives and then she's like, hey, Arnold, what? you know, Luis, what's going on? And that's when he tells her, oh, well, I have this theater gig and it's the opening weekend and I can't really like drop it. It's too soon. There's too much stuff to learn. And so Luis is going to suffer me uh, on the Ecuador dates. She, um, I can't remember if she was really pissed or not at that moment, but. Arnold was never asked back Wow uh, Is is what happened And so I went on Those three tour dates It was a double bill With Alejandro Martinez Who was a famous singer And uh, soap opera star In Colombia at the time as well mm. And it was a fantastic Three dates Of course they had to call Another rehearsal For my sake The next day And so I spent all night long Learning all these Three and four chord songs That are just melting In my brain together There's no sheet music On stage Because you know It's a rock show yeah. So but it was a ton of fun We ended up going To those three shows Everything was fine And then we ended up Touring for for another six months ended up doing over 50 shows and that was the end of 1996 in 1997 my mom before i left university for that semester my mom had made me promise and sign a contract that i would return to university uh after my six-month hiatus wow and so i remember on the flight back from New York uh, to Bogota, I went, sat with Shakira for a few minutes, and I I gave her the bad news. I said, listen, I made this promise to my mom that I don't intend to break it, that I'm going to go back to university. And so at that point, the band was going on holiday. It was mid-December, and she understood, and she was going to go into the studio at that point. Did some more shows in Brazil in the early 1997, and then she moved to Miami. And then she spent a couple years working with the Estefan family and Mm -hmm. went into the studio. That's when she launched her crossover albums after the fact and sort of began her uh, American market journey and and became very popular. But uh, in 1997, then I moved to Vancouver, did my uh, like 10-month audio engineering thing here, got into university later to study composition here in Vancouver, and then ended up going out to the cruise ships to play music uh, for a number of years, from 1999 to about 2005. In 2005, I was tired of the cruise ships and I took a local computer retail sales job with a Mac retailer. Wow.
1: That's a massive pivot. That's a massive right. pivot. So what was the catalyst to that, though? Was it because you knew technology because of keyboards and and that kind of thing? Or was it, I want to get into technology? Because that is a huge pivot from music yeah. to technology.
2: So I, I have to rewind back to like when we got our first PC at home. Our first computer at home was a Texas Instruments, a TI-84 something something. And uh, it was the kind that had the VHF adapters that you had to plug into your TV. And yes. they didn't come with a monitor. You just would plug them into your TV and use that That's as right. a monitor.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And
2: they had the cartridge. And you could extend serially the expansion things to the side indefinitely. You could have this computer that was like 60 feet wide. <laughs> uh, and so uh, that was the first computer. Then we had an Apple IIc. And after the Apple IIc, we had a, a PC. And we I used to play this game called Bushido on it. That was so much fun. But very early, I got this software called Cakewalk. And Cakewalk, you could buy a Sound Blaster card that had a MIDI port on it. And you can connect your keyboard with MIDI to the Sound Blaster card. And you can play music into the computer. So I was fascinated by that piece of computers and music, of like having whatever I'm playing represented in music by playing it live. And it was hard to get it working at the beginning because we didn't have the right sound card, didn't have MIDI, and and ordering stuff like that in Colombia was always difficult. And so it took a while. And then as my career in music got a little more serious, I kept upgrading to nicer keyboards and some of them had programming built in. Others you would just sequence with a software on the computer. And so I always had that interest parallel to the music stuff in computers and making stuff work with computers. And so when I got to 1999 is when I bought my first Mac again. I had a PC when I first arrived to Canada, but I bought a a a G3 Pismo laptop in 1999. Remember, it cost me like six grand at the time. It was so expensive. It weighed
1: about 15 kilos.
2: Yeah, they were heavy. And they yeah. were super thick, yeah. but that's that's when I started really working on music in earnest again. So I had Finale software on the computer and I was like writing music and I was recording it to the computer and doing stuff like that. When Later when I got a G3 or G4 tower is when I started to really do audio recording and really care about the music um, audio production side of stuff. Apple had acquired a German company called eMagic and that turned into Logic Pro a few years later. And so that was kind of the the music and computers thing. And so I started doing um, the local retail computer sales job and I got them to let me go get some training in Logic Pro as a trainer. They wanted a music expert at the shop. GarageBand was the big thing in 1995. They they said, okay, cool. And so I went to, I remember I went to Santa Monica and took this training for Logic Pro. Uh, This guy, Bill Burgess, fantastic music producer and just really knew the software. It was owned by Apple at this point. But at that course in Santa Monica, I saw a little like cell sheet stand at the counter by the front reception that had information about server courses. Mm -hmm. And I remember taking one of those home and thinking, what is this server stuff? You know, this looks really interesting to me. I, I want to say maybe the year after I left Simply Computing, which is the, the shop where I was working, and I immediately started a business. What I noticed when I was there is that the big iMacs were the ones that came out in the very beginning. They were these white acrylic iMacs. Right. They were yeah. very thick. They were quite heavy. They were like yeah. 30, 40 pounds at yeah. the time. And when people came to buy them, like nobody wanted to carry them home. And so when I left Simply, I turned around and offered a setup and delivery service to them to when customers bought a computer, they could sell the setup and delivery SKU, which was like 150 bucks for up to two hours of, of help yep. and a delivery from a computer expert. The start of the MSP. And that That's how I started. Yeah. And and it before you know it, it got really, really busy because it was a great way for the sales reps to not have to deal with the sale of the computer and the yep. and the shipping or the the courier what have you
1: They just wanted to sell hardware right
2: That's right and yeah. so my schedule filled up with these setups and deliveries and a lot of these customers became repeat customers uh, and it was mostly, you know, the break, fix, residential IT. And some of these started to bring me into their businesses. And it was in 2008 when I was referred to this medical clinic that was looking for a second opinion on their current IT. And I came in and I thought, you know, this seems overly complex. And on scene, the owner of the clinic at that time handed me the contract, said, listen, we're going to fire these folks right now. We, we trust you. We, we like you. Can you take this over? And I had to reverse engineer this managed services contract or this amount that they were going to pay me to figure out like what value can I deliver for that money? And that, that was the start of the true business MSP at that point. This was 2008.
1: You've been in the industry since then. And obviously you and I know, I'm going to say thousands of MSPs globally, you know, collectively, you and I have spoken to many throughout the world in various territories that we've traveled together with and in. It's amazing how much that story is mirrored in all the various territories, UK, Australia, New Zealand, you know, Ireland, Benelux. A lot of MSPs that have been around for over a decade started like that, didn't
2: they? I hear stories like this all the time. There's so much propensity for musicians in the IT business. I don't know if it's because, you know, musicians... Are, are just not making enough money generally speaking that they have to find another <laughs> gig and, and computers is the thing that they're most close to in many yep. cases yeah uh, but yeah I, I hear this stories like this all the time as well
1: The one thing about that story, obviously your foray into technology and computers was twofold. one was from your mom and home life with a computer at home and but also was your job and I use inverted commas because it was more of a it was a job but it was also a passion. Was there any inspiration though? Was, was there a, I won't say an epiphany because it's not an epiphany, but was there an inspiration to go down that route or, or was it just that you fell into it? Because we all have situations in our career where we have goals or we have things that we want to do in our careers, but most of the time we either fall into it via circumstance or opportunity or whatever. What side of the coin do you fall on here? Was it passion or was it opportunity?
2: Good question. The music piece, I was—I guess that's all I knew—and I kept pursuing music as as the thing that I knew how to do. And even when I got to Canada, I wanted to get more into the audio engineering side, but. You know, I was I was also a musician and I was even when I was going to audio engineering school here, I was out doing gigs and I joined the salsa orchestra and I was playing piano with the salsa or that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I ended up on the cruise ships playing music full time. And so the audio engineering seemed to always take a back seat to, to being a musician. But once I got into making computers work with music is sort of that that was maybe one of the epiphanies is that I, I loved the part of working with computers and music. And as soon as I saw this opportunity for the server course or that I had the facility for technology, I was like, well, this is interesting and I want to learn it. And, you know, I don't know that in 2005 or 2006 that online learning was really as ubiquitous as it is today. You know, things have changed a lot in 15, 16 years. And so you'd go and take a course somewhere. And so I I, I went and did that and it was just a fantastic deep dive way of learning. I I love those three day, four day courses. We just went and got completely soaked in it and came out with a ton of new knowledge and, and wanting to apply it. And so this is kind of what happened with that server course, where it just made me really want to do more server client type of work. And actually, I was having this conversation with Brian Fox on a podcast webinar thing we did recently for Enable. Uh, Brian Fox is the creator of the Bash shell. And so he's kind of a big deal. But we were talking about what got him into computers. And so he was interested in patterns. But for me, even back in middle school, it was this idea that you can connect to like some other device with your computer was fascinating to me, the connection piece. And so I was, I was always interested in like this networking part or the server-client relationship. And I guess that's sort of what made me want to take an, an interest and deep dive further into yeah, that. Yeah,
1: yeah. For me, what resonates here is, is the combination of your two passions, music and, and technology. And that's what, what drove you there. For me... It all started off with the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick, you know, where they were able to connect into the the, the war game computer and, and were able to speak to this massive computer and all that. So that, that that's what got me into technology, believe it or not. So there's something that we can do next time is watch that movie. But
2: oh, that's a great movie.
1: I want to ask you about the next phase of your career, because to me, this is where we became friends during this period of time. And it's it's an industry Cinderella story, no doubt, with Chris and, and the team. But where you had your company MonkeyBox, and I'd really want to know in a, a very succinct time of events or timeline from MonkeyBox to IT Glue to Enable. But I want to know how you came up with the idea of MonkeyBox, and then why Chris saw that and said, "I need Lewis, I need MonkeyBox," and then the IT and then the IT Glue phenomenon. Because let's face it, it is a Cinderella story in our industry.
2: Yeah. So I was at fully managed uh, in 2011, fully managed, which was Chris's MSP acquired my MSP at the time. And I came in to to lead the Apple solutions department, if you will. And it became apparent that I, I could have the sit downs with the C-level execs on the big product and uh, project pitches and stuff like that. So I kind of moved into this client strategy role. And by the way, another Cinderella story from that timeline is that You know, one of the people I worked very closely with when I was at Fully Managed was Martin DeRose. Martin DeRossier is the CEO of Nucleus um, Networks here in Vancouver, which is now a global Canadian MSP received recently, was acquired by Executech in the US. And so also an interesting sort of departure for Martin, and uh, he's done some great things there. Anyways, and so I became uh, director of client strategy after Martin left, and I was sort of really into this uh, stuff. And now... At Fully Managed, Fully Managed had their own internal documentation platform that had been built by Anthony, Chris's brother, it was called Folio. And it was a fantastic thing that served a very specific purpose at that time. When I left Fully Managed and I went and started my own MSP again, everything was fine as a one-person show, but as soon as I brought on a second person, the, the pain of sharing data and documentation was immediately apparent. There was no other product, you know, on the market there were some password managers and stuff like that, but nothing that really did documentation at that level. And so I, I built a proof of concept with FileMaker at the time, um, of like, uh, I have this buddy of mine in Louisiana, his name is Alan Hancock. We even worked on this pilot idea and he was part of this initial sort of thought process. Uh, he eventually went on to found his own company called Watchman monitoring, which is a very popular Mac based and Linux and windows monitoring platform as well and so he stepped away from this idea of the documentation platform but i kept going with this thing and it eventually became MonkeyBox. and i had seen this really cool app that was built by this group out of san francisco and it was a, a colleague of mine in the mac space uh, ben griner who works uh had a company called forget computers in chicago who has now been acquired by another big company as well. He had hired this group in San Francisco to build an app for him that plugged into Jamf uh, Pro at the time was called Casper Suite and did sort of reporting, uh, client-friendly reporting of that stuff. And I just loved the app. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to build something, I should build it properly. And so I reached out to this group in San Francisco. Uh, they were called 55 Minutes. And I remember I went down there and I, I pitched them this idea. And so I hired them to help me build out MonkeyBox. And so, you know, it was, a, it was bootstrapped. Um, We had just the the one, two developers working on the project initially. And this was in 2013 at the end of 2013, we were ready for launch. And I remember I went out to Ireland. I went to web summit that year which was an absolute madness of a show, but an extremely great learning experience. And sort of presented it to the world, um, picked up a couple of uh, seed investors that helped with uh, a little bit of money to to fund some of the early development. One of them is a, a good friend here that owns a marketing and digital agency. And so that was kind of fun. And it just slowly started picking up customers as we went along, as people started to realize the opportunity there was. But then Chris comes along and he built IT Glue early 2014 and started really doing the rounds with IT Glue. And that was a rocket ship because he knew right away that place to be was connected to PSA. And I remember that one of the first things he did was the integration with ConnectWise. And you know he went out to IT Nation. I've heard some of his stories of setting up hotel rooms to do meet and greets with potential people and pitching them this thing. And there was a lot of education because documentation as a as a platform didn't really exist at the time, right? And so it was a you had to convince people that this was a necessary part of the stack. And so you know, fast forward two three years, ITGlue glue is now in another stratosphere. Muckybox had grown to a, a few hundred customers, but it was still very bootstrapped. And you know, uh, it was one of those things where I knew Chris and I we kept talking about. Potentially doing something, uh, you know. At one point, we talked about building a PSA, if you can believe that crazy idea. And then at some point, he's like, "Hey, you know, why don't we bring you over to IT Glue?" And and so sort of we did the deal. Uh, and it was a time when IT Glue really, I think, needed a lot of that internal MSP experience. And I had also had experience building a product, and so it was sort of an interesting fit to sort of jump into this VP of product role, who would also have a channel facing evangelism component. And, you know, I, I started doing most of the public speaking for IT Glue and all that stuff. And that was a ton of fun. That was a good two solid years of, of that. IT Glue growing like crazy, joined Enable. Colin Knox actually is who reached out. He wanted to do something.
1: Who's a previous guest on the podcast, by the way, yeah.
2: Yeah, and, and Colin and Passportal had been acquired by SolarWinds and Colin at the time was leading the community efforts for SolarWinds MSP. And so he had this idea. We started talking in like February of 2020. And so COVID hadn't really happened at this point. And so the conversations uh, started to cool down as soon as they realized that events were being canceled and this community thing was kind of going to get a a pause button pushed anytime now. And so he realized it was not, maybe an immediate opportunity for working with him in the community side but he introduced me to Robert Wilburn the VP of Marketing at SolarWinds MSP and we really hit it off and Robert's a super smart guy and he saw the opportunity to bring somebody in who had that MSP experience could really evangelize and talk about so the challenge that MSPs have and just have smarter conversations I guess internally externally uh, on that kind of stuff.
0: MetCloud, get connected, cyber safe is our mantra. From tailored managed security solutions to our next generation cloud platform, MetCloud will drive your organization forward and help it thrive. You can keep up to date with us in all things cybersecurity by following us on Twitter at metcloud underscore com. We're also on LinkedIn and YouTube You can find the links to our social media pages and blogs via our website, metcloud.com. If data had a sound, it could be this. The sound of important and sensitive information leaking out of your business. MetCloud. Get connected. Cyber safe.
1: And, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to do in my career and my life over the past I want to say two, three years. Certainly, it's been more more prevalent during the pandemic. Um, is 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 follow the rules of the go giver. You know the 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 book, the the famous business book, and try and give more than you get because you're going to get it in return anyway. But that's not the premise of it. It's all about you know things will happen to you in a good way if you're giving out and you're helping people and you're mentoring people or you're you're you know you're just giving and not expecting anything in return. And I, and I think. Yes, that's that's an age thing. I think as you get older, you want to do that anyway, because we had people that did that for us. But I also think from a, a mental health point of view, and that's a big thing these days, you know, mental health, but also being able to sleep at night, being able to give something to someone or being able to help someone or something just makes me feel so much better. And I, I feel like I'm in such a better place now to be able to help someone as opposed to what's in it for me.
2: So that's an interesting point of view, and, and I love it because back when I started my IT company, uh, or even before that, uh, when I was doing music, I had joined uh, BNI, Business Networking International. And for those who know BNI, uh, it's a group of people that don't have any overlapping industries and they work as a refer network for each other. It's fairly well organized and and well managed. And you know, people, your mileage may vary, let's just say, but for me at the time, the thing that really stuck about BNI was their motto, which is givers gain. And so it's exactly what you just said. And I kind of internalized that a lot. And I've, when I started my IT business and I joined the Apple Consultants Network, something really interesting happened. This guy out of the blue, who was also listed on the Consultants Network, Mark Cohen, he called me out of the blue, didn't even know who I was. I didn't know who he was and just introduced himself. He said, hey, I saw you pop up on the membership of the Consultants Network and what's up? <laughs> and uh, and I, I loved that. Uh, and, you know, lo and behold, he became a mentor to me in, in more ways than, than I could ever thank him for. But, you know, he had an Apple repair business as well as part of the consulting business that he had. And he'd bring me in to like, hey, I'm building a rack server today. Do you want to check it out? And he'd let me go shadow him. And then when I jumped off the deep end myself and took on a customer that had servers and I had never really managed servers, he was my call a friend uh, lifeline. And so he definitely got me unstuck so many times, but I think he really instilled in me this community aspect or, or the mentality of sharing. And it's just something that I've always felt it's important for everybody to do as part of being in this community is to just share. and you know. Absolutely.
1: And the common, the common thread for all the podcasts that I've been doing now, and we're now in series two, as you know. Everyone, every guest that I've had on the podcast has a mentor or mentors, and it's the most common thread for everyone that's been on. By the way, that book that I just mentioned, The Go-Giver, Bob Berg and John David Mann are the authors of that, just in case anyone wants to go and see that on Amazon or, or their favorite bookshop. It's something, it's a book that I loved. It's only, I think it's only like 140 pages or something, but it's so worth it. I want to come to present day. Just recently, you were appointed Chief Experience Officer of ScalePad. Can you tell me a little bit about ScalePad and seriously want to know what a Chief Experience Officer is?
2: So Warranty Master rebranded as ScalePad in October of last year. Many people know the name Warranty Master because it's been around since, you know, roughly 2015, 2014.
1: Under the leadership of Dan, of course.
2: Now under the leadership of Dan, yeah. Dan joined uh, two, three years ago. Mm -hmm. I've been a customer of Warranty Master since September of 2015. So I've been around the product all these years. And have always found it to be extremely valuable and of course i've i've known as a result of anthony having built folio instead of fully managed i've known anthony for a long time and anthony and chris are the co-founders and so there's always been sort of this interesting relationship that i've, I've known the scalepad people all these years the chief experience officer thing is so fascinating because one of the things that's obvious to me is that partner success has been evolving a little bit over time it's no longer enough to have these siloed functions inside of companies where you have marketing over here with their priorities, sales group over here with their priorities and, you know, partner success over there that just kind of get punted all the balls and they have to deal with whatever happens on that side. And so the chief experience officer role was really meant to to roll these things up from a customer journey perspective into a, a more aligned strategy and I think I love that because I've been a consumer of MSP vendor services for so long and I, I see this disjointed approach to to customer experience but also I think MSPs are going through their own interesting transition in the next five to ten years Microsoft launched their EXP platform with Microsoft Viva in the last couple of weeks And so there's a big focus on the employee experience inside of organizations. And so I think MSPs are going to end up being responsible in a large part for this employee experience that that those companies are having internally. And so it'll be an interesting pivot, I think. But as a result, I think everybody's going to become even more interested in experience overall and having a unified uh, strategy and all that stuff. So very strategic, I think, on Scalepad's part to be thinking, hey, let's align this uh, customer experience. Scalepad is a very product-led company. I think they have innovation at the heart. Like I've seen the early stages of Warranty Master and where it's gone. And I can't speak to some of the future things just yet, but I'm looking forward to. One of the reasons I decided to jump in is because I saw sort of a return to product and customer centric. That's very exciting. I think it's the kind of thing that every MSP dreams of having a, that kind of relationship with their vendors. And so if I can be a part of delivering a little bit on that uh, or improving that experience in any kind of way, I think, you know, we will have succeeded. And so that's the objective.
1: I want to get into my quick fire three. And then at the end, I want you to tell the listeners where they can get in contact with you and, and, and connect with you because listeners want to connect with our guests and ask questions. My first question to you is, what are you not very good at? You know, what have you done or what are you doing to address things that you may not be good at? I want to know what they are and what you're doing about it.
2: Oh man, I'm not good at so many things. And you know, it's funny because this question gets asked in interviews For jobs all the time, it's like what you know. What are things can you improve on? And I remember hearing, yeah, well, everything. But but there's a some thought leader I remember hearing. Maybe it was like Simon Sinek or somebody of that stature saying something like, "Why can't you instead of working on your deficiencies, work on the things that you're great at?" And so I think that's kind of been my stance on that a little bit: is what can I feel that I can empower others with? What am I actually good at? And I've been kind of focusing on those things. When when I come across the stuff I'm not great at delegation is is a wonderful thing but yeah so I don't know that I have a specific answer for you
1: no I, I think that's a really good answer and I'll tell you why because too much in our lives we get told that we're crap at something or we can't do something or we're not good at something or we could do better and it's only recently where you know my dad or people I know have said you're really good at that why don't you do it why don't you do more of that you know you're really good at this why don't you do more of that and I think, you know, again, we've been able to reflect over the last couple of years and think, you know what, that's a really good idea. If I'm good at that, surely I could be absolutely better at that and therefore put the negative aside, put the positives in front of me and and really work on those positives because that may resonate with other people and therefore make positives out of that as well.
2: What I will say uh, to, to wrap that up is that what I what I have discovered is that maybe I, I am great at or I am good or I love troubleshooting and solving complex problems. And so the interesting realization of that is that that can work in different careers and in different uh, contexts. And so I think for those who think that they're only great at computers, think of like, what are the first principles of those things? Like, what is it about being great at computers that is transplantable to other things? You know, and it's interesting to see in the Facebook group, sometimes the IT people talking about, hey, you know, what is everybody's side hustle? You know, and everybody seems to have a side hustle and and they're varied by the stretch of different things that people are doing is fascinating. You know, from owning a storage locker to a boating to whatever, you name it, people are doing it. And so I think the interest of being able to peel back the layers of the onion and and realize what is actually great about being good at computers is the ability to have a a sound troubleshooting mentality or model, for example, or that kind of stuff.
1: That's a really good uh,
2: overview on that.
1: Right. If you could turn back the time and talk to your 18-year-old self, what would you tell him?
2: Uh, to just go for it. I wish I hadn't hesitated as much as I, I did about making a decision, trying something. You know, Gary Vee, I listened to Gary Vaynerchuk quite a bit. And one of the things he does is... He reminds people a lot of how young they really are. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure for the 20 something year olds to, to seemingly have things figured out. And I think he's spot on when he says just go do things, go do different things, try different things, see what you like, figure out what you're good at. And you can do that well into your late 20s and not necessarily have a career figured out. You know, it's only recently, since 2017, that I joined IT Glue and then sort of have transitioned onto being more in, in the corporate context that I've realized, you know, I can actually do this. I was already in my 40s for Pete's sake. So my, what I'd say is just do more things sooner uh, would yeah. be the, the recommendation.
1: Love that. One of the general comments in all of the guests that I've had, and actually Colin Knox, who, who's a mate of ours and a previous guest, really emphasized this point about failure and failure made him better and failure is part of life and all that kind of stuff. But what's been your biggest failure and what did you learn from it?
2: Hmm. Yeah, I just have chosen not to dwell on those things too much. I see them all as opportunities. Uh, and I, I think that's maybe the, the hopeless optimist in me that just doesn't see them as failures necessarily, but as learning opportunities. I think the, the failure is maybe not having done certain things sooner, you know, not, not having a little bit more resolve to, to make a decision or, or change something or adapt a behavior or that kind of stuff. I, not failures necessarily, but yeah.
1: And you know what? I think seven out of 10 people have said the same thing. And I think that's quite, quite pertinent you know, good luck in the new, in the new position. I, I, I have no doubt you're going to be an absolute success. And, and the company's going to go from strength to strength with you being part of that senior leadership team and, and the organization. And, and with you, Dan and, and Chris around, I'm, I'm sure it'll be a massive success. Where can people go to find out more about you and the company?
2: Yeah, for sure. My email at scalepad, at Luis.Giraldo at scalepad.com. I'm also in a couple of the Slack groups and Discord channels where people are hanging out. I'm also in the MSP Geek uh, Slack group in there. Uh, and I, I mostly wear the MSP hat with a lot of these communities. And yeah, so those are probably the primary places.
1: Fantastic, mate. On that note, I, I want to absolutely thank you for spending Friday afternoon with me. You know, I can I can attest to the last comment you made. If anyone wants to know what's going on in the MSP community, what's been going on in the MSP world over the last five years, and, and certainly someone who I trust that can tell me what they believe is going to happen in the industry over the next two years. You know, speak to Luis because you act as a, a sounding board for me in in business and industry. and And if people have got the right mind, they will contact you and ask you your opinion. So, you know, I want to wish you well. Wish you well in your new gig. And thank you so much for spending time with me today and uh, running through the journey and and life lessons that you've had, mate.
2: Well, thanks, Scott. It's an absolute honor uh, that you consider me a guest of your podcast, and it's great to hang out with you and hope to do it a lot more in the coming months.
1: Well, that's Series 2, Episode 2, Now Done, and I really enjoyed speaking to Lewis this morning. First is understanding how different countries are getting on with their COVID policies and their vaccination programs, because we all want to see the world open up again ASAP. It's also great to hear the general optimism that things are hopefully starting to look a lot better for 2022 and beyond lewis's story is all about being in the right place and the right time and that journey does provide opportunity and it also determines what your journey is going to look like in the future you know it doesn't always mean that everything's successful because these lessons that we have are all part of those stepping stones to making our life the best we possibly can for ourselves and our family Lewis is now back in familiar surroundings at ScalePad with a lot of his old IT glue team and I know those guys and I'm sure it'll be a huge success and I wish him and the team all the very best well that's it for another episode of the Vanguard podcast as I said and please do us a favor subscribe look out for a new episode every other Wednesday and remember take care stay safe and keep on innovating